Vale. It's episode 12. It's episode 12. Welcome back this week to Yoo-hoo. True Crime B&B. Mm-hmm. I wanted to mention that piece of mail that came to you today oh, with your Lord. name on it from the funeral <laughs> home and I'm wondering what the hell you've been doing. I guess they're like these true crime biatches are just asking for it. Yeah, technically it doesn't say my name. It just has my maiden name, the <laughs> blah family. So very well could be my father sending this. <laughs> Dad, is this a threat? <laughs> Come back to Ohio or else. Yes. <laughs> had a little trip this week. Did you have anything exciting happen? Well, the hotel staff was trying to murder me in my sleep. Really? Tuscaloosa wants to kill you? Tuscaloosa wants to kill me. I don't even know exactly what happened. I was too shy to go down and confront them. So it all started. I got to my hotel room. I waited for my dad and brother to arrive. And then they did. And I went down, of course, to go to dinner with them. And then when I came back to the room, it was slightly ajar. So I... So your door's standing open. It wasn't standing wide open. You know when you close a door, but it doesn't close all the way, so it pops back open a tiny bit? It's open. So it was open. Like, I didn't know if I had done it or if somebody else had done it. I doubt you did it. So I walked in and I was kind of like just doing a surveillance of all my stuff to make sure that nothing was missing because I didn't know exactly if I had done it or not. So I don't think you did it. So obviously I was thrown off and I put my key card down on the night table and then I followed my brother back out to the hallway to see if the door would close. And of course it locks this time, so I'm locked out of the room. So I go down to the reception and tell them, hey, I'm a dumbass and I locked myself out of my room. And she asked me what room I'm in, so I tell her. And not even having to look up to make sure, like check my ID or anything, she just looks down at the desk and says, oh, that room? And I said, yes, that's the room I'm in. And she goes, oh, here you go. The maintenance man was in your room earlier because the door lock wasn't working. And so I was kind of like, uh, I never complained about the door lock not working. It worked perfectly fine when I entered it before. Yeah. So I go and try to do it again, but this time I can open it without even using the keypad. It just pops right open if you push on it. So the entire night I'm staying completely by myself and I had to call mom and was like, what do I do? Like, how do I barricade this door so I can sleep tonight? Of course, you could have just gone and said, I need a different room. I could have, but I am... Very, I don't know, non-confrontational. When you called me, I didn't get the impression that the door still wasn't locking properly. Well, it did. I finally figured out that if I put my entire body weight onto it, and it was, it had another one of those double locks where you could, if you twist it, it'll do another lock. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't do it unless you put 200 pounds of effort. So, so it's kind of like our front door. Kind of like our front door. <laughs> Luckily, I had the experience, so I figured out how to lock it. You and, can't open or close it. Yeah, so... so. It all worked out okay. I'm alive. And Fantastic. Now that hotel's going to have some a nice wordy <laughs> complaint coming that way. <laughs> and all this because your brother was doing a campus visit in Alabama. Yes, I got to go to Alabama for his first ever campus, my baby brother. Which is really weird because we're a family of Big Ten people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a little conflicted being <laughs> and a Georgian. Mac. I guess your dad's a Mac person, but your brother's going to end up in Alabama, which I think is hilarious. The betrayal. <laughs> Alright, anyway, sorry about all of the long-windedness. Anything you want to share about your week? No. No, No? I I survived, I killed no one. Amen, sister. It's as good as it's going to get. So I'm going to go first this week. This week I brought a story that's a little close to home for me, and you'll know why here in a little bit. Just tune in. Do you have tissues? No, it's it's not a sad story. It's close to home, literally, like my hometown. Okay. 
but a long time ago. <laughs> All right. So it starts out, Dr. Samuel Holmes Shepard was born on December 29th in 1923 in Cleveland, Ohio. He attended the Cleveland Heights High School, and there he met his future wife, Marilyn Reese, because they both attended. Mm-hmm. He was very athletic in three different sports, and he had awesome grades all throughout. He was offered several athletic scholarships, but his dad and all of his, I think he had three older brothers, they had all gone on to medical school, so he decided to pursue that and follow in the family interest. He went on to Hanover College in Indiana, and he decided to study osteopathic medicine and later became an osteopathic neurosurgeon. Okay. So he ended up actually finishing his doctor in Los Angeles, where he and his wife Marilyn ended up tying the knot. I don't know the difference between an MD and a DO. I don't entirely understand. The way I hear it is an MD follows strict rules, whereas a DO, they more listen to the patient and then prescribe. Yeah, a little more holistic, prescribe as they see fit versus, oh, follow this pattern and this is what you have to do. Medical protocol. Right. Hmm. Medical science, but it's less by the book, more how they think this should be. So Sam Shepard was a DO. So he was a DO. He was a neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeon. All right. I don't really know how you how that. Like we said, we don't, I know. don't understand. Anyway, well, all right, but that's not the crux of the story. It's so not it even matter. important, really. So, like I said, he married his wife Marilyn in Hollywood, February twenty first in nineteen forty five. In Hollywood, California. Hollywood, California, because he got his doctorate in Los Angeles, okay. and then they ended up moving back to Cleveland a few years later. Mm-hmm. When they moved back to Cleveland, he ended up getting a job at Bayview Hospital, which was his father's hospital. Okay. So every year, the two of them would throw a huge 4th of July bash, and they lived right on Lake Erie, so it was a very scenic, beautiful place to live. So all of their friends would flock in and just have this shebang, and then would leave at the end of the night. Mm -hmm. On July 3rd, 1954, the party went off as usual, and soon Sam actually ended up falling asleep on the daybed in their living room. So Marilyn ended up telling everybody, all right, the party's over, he's asleep, time for everybody to get out, and he... She walked them all to the door and then went upstairs and fell asleep herself. A few hours later, Sam woke up to the sounds of Marilyn screaming out, so he ran up the stairs to their bedroom where he saw a, in quotes, white biped form, who proceeded to hit him with an unknown object, knocking him unconscious. And when he woke up again, he kind of woke up. They had a seven-year-old son at the time. So he first saw that his wife was badly wounded in their bed, and then he went to go check on his son, and he had been sleeping this entire time. So it slept through whatever attack just occurred. Mm-hmm. And so Sam goes downstairs after hearing a bang, thinking this intruder's still in there, and he ends up chasing the guy into the backyard, where they get into a scuffle, and the intruder again proceeds to hit him in the head and knock him unconscious. All right. Yeah, so that's the whole exciting part of this. Uh. Yeah, so at 5.40 a.m., their neighbors received a phone call, which were actually the people that had been there the night before for the party. They received a phone call from Sam asking them to come back to the house because he was frantically panicked and didn't know what had just happened. He could have called the police. They would have helped. I think he was just in shock and was kind of like, these are the people that are closest to me. That's the way it seemed. But they arrived to find Sam disoriented and he was shirtless and his pants were wet because he'd been in the lake, it seemed, and he had a blood stain on his kneecap. And that was, even Sam didn't really know what had happened, so right. that's not really explainable at this point. Okay, and he's still only describing this intruder as a, he a said, white um, biped? He said he saw a white biped figure and then that he had frizzy hair. 
And that's what he brings. It was me. It was us. It was both of us. <laughs> so when the police arrived, they found Marilyn was laid out on their bed in a suggestive, provocative manner and had, this is a quote from clevelandhistorical.org, had been chopped 25 times in the head and chest. Jesus Christ. So, like I told you before, the couple's seven-year-old son, who was Sam Reese Shepard, basically Sam Shepard Jr., and their dog had not woken up the entire time during this attack. So the dog had not barked at all. Like, he was completely just chill in the bed with the sun. Then the police also found that some items belonging to Sam, including his watch, his keys, and his fraternity ring, had been stolen, but they later found all of those items in a cloth bag thrown into his back bushes. Question mark. <laughs> all right. Um, so all the evidence seemed to point towards Sam being the culprit, and his trial became an early example of trial by media. It became huge all across the Midwest, mm-hmm. even into New York and Maine and all that. Everybody was talking about it. Mm-hmm. And they're still talking about it. They're still talking about <laughs> it. I'm telling you. So every nearby newspaper began posting front page stories about it, claiming a bunch of untrue stuff, stuff that was later proven not to be true at all including a New York City woman who came forward on a popular radio show who was claiming to be his mistress and the mother of his illegitimate child, and she actually didn't know him at all. All claims ended up being false. Yeah. Looking for 15 minutes of fame right there. Okay. At some poor guy's expense. Yeah. However, the jurors were not sequestered, and two of them even admitted to the judge to having heard the very biased radio broadcast, but they were not dismissed later on. Just to show you how biased this entire trial was, the judge, right before the trial started, was interviewed by a reporter and was on record saying, well, he's guilty as hell. There's no question about it. Oh, wow. So, and that was before the trial? So, before the trial even started. So Sam had no chance of oh, having God. a fair trial this here. This is what they call a kangaroo court. Yeah, it's oh, my God. Bad. In his defense, Sam was injured severely in the attack. He had a cervical concussion, severe nerve damage where his hands wouldn't even close all the way anymore. It's hard to be a surgeon. Yeah, exactly. And then he also had an injury of the second cervical vertebrae, which is right here in the back of your neck. So how would he, it would be very hard for him to accomplish that himself. Like you could, I'm not saying you can't, but. Let's try right now. Yeah. (laughs) Where's a big stick? Give you a good whack. I think you could if you had the right tool. If you had the right tool. Something bulbous, you know, something that's bigger on the end. Or like a stick, yeah, something like that could. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So So anyway, if you're a surgeon though, do you really want to risk paralyzing yourself? Yeah, you're not in the nose. Better yet, your hands. You're mm-hmm. not going to like stab yourself in the hands or whatever happened. Yeah. I mean, you... I'm not claiming innocence for the guy, but I think if he's a neurosurgeon, a he's going to strong... know that's a really dangerous thing for him to be playing a game <laughs> with. Exactly. Especially if you're the type of person to do this for like, any kind of selfish motivation. You know what I mean? Yeah. The scene was also incredibly bloody, but the only blood found on Sam was on his kneecap, which they kind of guessed had happened when he'd been knocked out the first time and fell into her blood on the floor in the bedroom. Okay. Kind of makes sense. So it was her blood that was on his kneecap? It was her blood, yes. All right. But Sam did end up being found guilty, which is no surprise here, in December of 1954. He's guilty as hell. He's guilty as hell. So in 1954, he was convicted of second-degree murder, receiving life in prison. While incarcerated in 1959, because he was going to live life in prison, but he's still a doctor, he still wanted to do his part. So Sam actually agreed to take part in a medical trial where they would inject live cancer cells to be injected into his body and see the study of that over time. Oh, God. 
that's just briefly mentioned that never comes up again i just thought just showed some character of i just don't see how that could be a good idea at all i don't either but i, I mean, think when... he kind of was fuck it why not <laughs> yeah that sounds like a bad plan yeah and then in 1964 so 10 years he's been in jail for this after the original judge had died, the Supreme Court actually reversed the ruling and agreed that Sam had not received a fair trial. Shocker, oh, shocker. Yeah. And he was released on bond and retried in 1966. He ended up being acquitted. They came back with blood spatter evidence suggesting that the person who had attacked both of them had been left-handed and Sam was right-handed. And that was the huge sealed the deal. it was me. <laughs> oh my god, you're right. <laughs> So far, this is describing you to a T. I'm biped, I have frizzy hair, and I'm left-handed. It's me. So maybe this is for you. (laughs) After his release from prison, and he was finally not exactly proven, but they had no reasonable evidence that he had committed this murder. So Sam actually ended up moving to the suburb of Columbus, Gehanna, Ohio. Really? Mm -hmm. I did not know that. And he opened his own medical practice there, which, fun fact, is the office building... That my father used to work at. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah, so you know the one. I won't tell the address or anything on here. That's really interesting. It's cool though, right? Huh. Did your dad know that? He's the one who told me about this. Okay. I don't think he knew the entire story, but it's on the ghost tour of Gehanna now. Well, you told me about the ghost tour, but you didn't tell me about Sam Shepard. Yeah, so this is the background, the back story to this. That's bizarre. Wow. (laughs) So... While he had this medical practice, he actually had developed severe alcoholism because his wife was murdered right in front of him and he was blamed for it. I don't and judge spent him for that. 10 years in prison. Yes. So while he was working in this office, he accidentally cut a major artery within a four-month span of two different patients because he was practicing under the influence oh, of alcohol. Oh, geez, Sam, that's not a good way to redeem so yourself. in the four-month span, he lost two patients who I believe they said the... 35-year-old woman and 29-year-old woman, so they weren't... That's just awful. Yeah. In 1969, he ended up retiring his medical career. He decided, you know, that's enough for me. And was his son by this time? Was he with his other family? I think he was raised by his mother's parents. Okay. But he, this entire time, was on his dad's side and said, there's no way he did this. I know my dad's citizen. In 1969, Sam went on to become, fun fact, a professional wrestler at the age of 45. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, I know, just super random, but... He actually used his anatomical knowledge to create a killer move called the mandible claw. Holy <laughs> shit. Which was very popular later on in like the 90s. Somebody else made it pretty famous. Oh my god. We have to find out who did that. <laughs> That's hilarious, right? <laughs> So that was in 1969. He actually only ended up having 40 matches, but because he was so famous because of this murder trial, he ended up being a famous wrestler. Mm -hmm. So then April 6th in 1970, Sam was found dead in his Columbus home because of liver failure and brain damage. There was some really long disease I'm not even going to try to pronounce on here, but it was brain damage associated with alcoholism as well. Finally, in 1997, so 20-something years after he died, 27 years after he died, Sam Shepard Jr. had his father exhumed in order to once and for all clear his name of his mother's murder because they ended up having blood samples of the, a third party and they just didn't have DNA evidence at the time that could be tested. Mm-hmm. So they had him exhumed and the DNA found at the crime scene, in fact, did not have any match to Sam and 27 years after his death, he was completely absolved from the murder of Marilyn. 
Wow. And in pop culture, there was actually a series and a movie. I, I don't know if it was the 1970s the series came out. In, I think the know? series was in the 70s and I 60s or 70s? I don't yeah, know. It was, then. I was too little to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> but then they remade it as a movie with Tom Neely Jones and, and Harrison Ford. I'm three. pretty sure it was I believe. Ford. I think you're right. We could have looked it up. <laughs> we didn't do a good job on this part. <laughs> but it's called The Fugitive and it is rumored to be loosely based on the story of Sam Shepard and the murder of his wife, Marilyn. However, the producers and people that directed it have claimed it's not related, but we beg to differ. <laughs> it sure sounds like it. And then I did also, I didn't write it down, but there was also a handyman that worked for the couple who later on ended up confessing to the murder of Marilyn. Really? And he actually had the exact same blood type that was found in the room. Okay. But all of this came to light. I think they finally cleared Sam officially in like 2000. So the handyman completely got away with it? So he died in 1998. Oh my gosh. And he was cremated. So they couldn't, they just knew his blood type because he'd been arrested, fun fact, for murdering three other women. You know what? I have (laughs) to believe that if Sam Shepard, the neurosurgeon, Mm -hmm. had wanted to kill his wife, he could have done it in a little bit more nuanced way than clobbering her with whatever blunt object. Yeah, like there's... I mean, he cut arteries by accident all the time. Why couldn't he just do He wasn't doing that yet, though. <laughs> Not yet. But, but, I mean, he could have, you know, drugged her and pushed her into Lake Erie. Yeah. And it later came out that she was actually pregnant at the time, too, with his child. Wow. So why would he do that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. At yeah. the end of the day, Sam Shepard, sorry you got blamed for that, dude. That wasn't cool. Yeah, but you had some details in there that I had no clue about. And your dad's office is amazing. What he told me was... You know, my office, apparently, it's haunted by a doctor that killed his wife. And I looked into it, and I was like, no, we don't, Dad, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but he got you started on a good story, so. But he did kill two people, possibly, in that office. So, Oh, that's true. Question mark, Was he actually performing neurosurgery in that office? He he got approved. He had privileges with the local hospital, and he could do certain surgeries in his location, is what they said. So, (laughs) I don't know how that works. But yeah, he was actually performing a lot of... I'm pretty sure I don't want anybody cutting into my brain stem while I'm laying in an outpatient surgery office. Well, yeah, but this is (laughs) the 60s and 70s, so... Yikes. Okay. Yeah, fun story about Sam. So, what do you got for me this week? For a long, long time, we've been hearing about bystander effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And bystander effect or bystander apathy is defined as when a person witnesses a crime, an emergency, or an individual in need of some sort of help, and they do nothing, and it particularly happens when people are in groups. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's more likely that people in groups will fail to act than it is that a single individual will fail to act. Typically, it's believed that in groups... Each person feels that someone else will handle the problem, Mm -hmm. whereas an individual is more likely to realize that I'm the only one here, so I'm the only one that can help. Right. Over the years, there have been polls and studies and research done to try to understand why people act the way they do when they witness somebody who desperately is in need of help. It became known as the Genovese Effect, named for Kitty Genovese, who Mm -hmm. was infamously murdered in 1964 in New York City. Heartbreaking story, yes. Is popular belief fully accurate? No, just like <laughs> Sam Shepard. Yes. It, yeah. You know, it kind of grows on its own and it takes on a life of its own. And yeah, the rumor just, mill and you just lose fact versus fiction. Yeah, they just keep inflating the story. The story that people heard was 38 people were watching through their windows as Kitty was stalked down the street, raped and stabbed in three separate attacks. 
that's a compelling story. If that was the truth, it does mm-hmm. stick with you. But the truth is that very few people could actually see her from their windows. Some people did shout to scare Winston Mosley away, and it succeeded one time. But then after he was scared away the one time, he came back and attacked her again. Several people did call the police. Mm-hmm. But this happened in the middle of the night. People were awakened by yes. this. You're foggy in the head. You don't quite understand what's going on. So I think people weren't as apathetic as the story is. And you have to think they also did not have 911 at the time. You confronting that person is putting yourself into that position to also be attacked. And at the time, that's just unfortunately your life or hers. Right. Is what it came down to for a lot of people who did nothing. Well, some people did do stuff. A lot of people but did they do didn't, stuff. Yeah. They didn't physically intervene. Mm-hmm. One woman did rush to Wounded Kitty and held her in her arms until the ambulance arrived. So mm-hmm. at least she didn't lay there alone and terrified, thinking nobody cares. Yeah. But her neighbors were not the cold, uncaring, faceless crowd that have become a shameful legend and urban legend at that almost. Mm-hmm. But what it comes down to is that nobody, like we said, physically stepped in to try to help during the attack to push the guy off of her. But before I can turn this positive, I have to acknowledge another seriously troubling example of this that took place in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania in October 2021. A woman was riding a crowded commuter train. Crowded. (laughs) Many, many people in this train. She was assaulted, and in fact, she was raped on the commuter train in front of many other passengers, and not one passenger spoke up. No one pushed the guy off of her. No one yelled to distract him. No one even bothered to call 911. What the fuck? They could have done this with zero danger to themselves and nobody Ugh. even called 911. So yeah, it's easy to lose faith in humanity when you hear stories like that. Well, how many people did you say were on that train? It was just full? It was full. Jesus It was Christ. full. This story enrages me beyond belief because I don't know how many people listening have had... A sexual assault experience but it is life-changing mm-hmm. it is trauma it is something that people may never get over and she had this happen in front of all these people yeah, and that's just an extra not a level single of person to it I exactly can i'm sure that her ptsd is even worse knowing that nobody tried to help If it were up to those people on this train, this guy would have gotten away with it. But fortunately, a transit employee saw the end of the assault on video, and he called for law enforcement, who were able to apprehend the perpetrator. The guy was 35-year-old Fishton Nagoy, and they caught him at the next station, and I hope he enjoys his life in prison. I wish there was a way to just, everybody that saw that, immediate jail time. I don't even care if it's just a year. You need to be in prison or jail some kind. It just baffles me. Ugh. It baffles me how you could just not, to not even call 911. Yeah, I'm, we're not even saying put yourself in danger here. Right. Do the bare minimum. Right. God. Speaking of incarceration, though, Deputy Warren Hobbs, he was a jailer working in the Gwinnett County Jail in Georgia. Oh, okay. Not far from here. When the inmates noticed that he was not acting like himself. He seemed like he was uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable. He was sweating. He was fanning himself with his hat. And he just generally seemed unwell. One of them in his cell could actually see Deputy Hobbs at the officer's desk. Mm -hmm. He passed out and he fell and he hit his head on the ground. Yikes, okay. So one of the inmates by the name of Mitchell Smalls 
he was the only one who had direct line of sight with Deputy Hobbs on the floor. Mm-hmm. And so when he noticed that he was hurt, he began to pound on his door and he started yelling the officer's name and this was drawing attention of all the other inmates in the unit. Aww. And pretty soon everyone began to understand that the deputy was having a health event of some kind. And then all of them, the entire unit began pounding on the doors trying to wake him up from his unconsciousness because it's not like they could go down and check on him. Right. The only help he was going to get oh, was if they attracted attention. So they're literally all locked into their their respective. Yeah, yeah. Okay. it's during their lock-in time. <sighs> so the noise that they were making did rouse him just enough. He didn't even realize that anything had happened. He woke up on the floor just barely. Like, so he literally just collapsed. Like he collapsed and he hit his head. He's very groggy. He's not sure what's going on, but he knew something had happened because he's on the ground and he's bleeding and he's hurt and. So he reached up and he popped their cell door open. And those two guys came out, got him up off the ground. They called for help and they stayed with him and encouraged him and they got medical attention to him. Well, how did they call for help? Did they have to go bang on the door that leads out of the No, they used the phone at the officer's Oh, I didn't even think about his desk. Yeah, so they just called and the two inmates named Walter Whitehead and Terry Loveless came down, they called for medical help and assisted Deputy Hobbs until help arrived. Of course, the jail staff was initially uncertain about how did Deputy Hobbs get a head injury? They're thinking, you know, maybe these guys did something to him, but they asked a lot of questions. The deputy said, no, these guys were in their cells when this happened. No, nobody did anything to me. So he got the help he needed and he's recovering and looking forward to returning to work. But he very easily could have died. And if they had been apathetic yeah, and if that's... they had done nothing, they could have said, screw it. I'm in my cell. It's not my problem. They but... could have let him die. And they did not. God. So that just goes to show anyone can do the right thing. Yeah. And a lot of people in prison are not there because they're horrible humans. You know what I that's mean? That's right. <laughs> in a different kind of bystander intervention in Manhattan last May, a 54-year-old woman was standing on a subway platform just waiting for a train when a total stranger unhurriedly walked up behind her and suddenly began stabbing her in the neck area. He had managed to stab her twice, two good stabs, when quickly, out of nowhere, Sean Conaboy, who is a freelance camera operator and just happened to be there and saw the man starting to attack because he had had his eye on him ahead of time when he was walking around suspiciously carrying a knife. (laughs) So he's pretty vigilant to notice that, though. (laughs) So... So he saw the man acting suspiciously. Guy goes, he attacks the woman. Sean Conaboy throws himself on the attacker physically, knocking all three of them to the ground. So the woman, the attacker, and Sean are all on the ground. And after Conaboy intervened, other individuals started help holding the man down. So in the end, 22-year-old Joshua Nazario had a five-inch blade. He had been totally unprovoked. And all these people are holding him down on the subway platform waiting for the police. Later on, when he was asked how he was able to act so bravely, Conaboy said seeing the woman in distress and wanting to prevent further injury to her was enough reason for him to put himself in harm's way. Some people are just wired that way. But if he hadn't been there, would anybody else have taken the initiative? I mean, that's just so terrifying. Yeah. You keep seeing all these stories, too, of people getting pushed off the platform onto the train. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to say if anybody else would have done anything. Mm -hmm. Maybe just no one else had noticed him until it started to happen. But Sean was there, and his actions almost certainly saved her life. Absolutely, yeah. In Davis, California, last August, a homeless 59-year-old woman was assaulted by Joseph Grenken, who had no connection to her. He just simply picked her to beat up. 
A group of strangers who just happened to be there witnessed the attack on the woman and they got between her and Granken and then detained him until the police arrived to arrest him. In the process, one of those people assisting also got injured. So they stepped in. Wait, so what was he attacking her with? I think he was just beating her. He was just beating on her. Christ, what's wrong with people? (laughs) There's no word in this story as to whether someone specifically took the lead and then everyone else followed in. Mm -hmm. But it just appears that all these people said, this is not okay, I'm going to do what I can to help here. So there was no bystander effect at all in this case. Yay! Well, I feel like it's a lot easier too when you're with a group of friends. Because I do a lot of things. I don't know if they were friends. I don't think so those literally people just knew a each other. Man, maybe a random group of people. I think they were just a random group of people. Ugh. So that just makes me feel better. In Arizona, in 2017, a state trooper pulled over to investigate a serious car crash. A woman had been ejected, and when he stopped, Trooper Edward Anderson found this woman who was laying on the ground after she was thrown from her car. He began to lay out flares to assist in the emergency vehicles that were going to come mm-hmm. so they you know, wouldn't run over the important things that they need to see. Right. And he was suddenly ambushed. He was shot at least one time. The suspect physically began to attack the trooper climbing on top of him and pounding his head down onto the pavement and obviously was trying to kill him. Turned out later, I read that the car crash that the woman was ejected from her car during Mm -hmm. that was caused by a gunshot so someone had shot at her car she rolled her car should have seen the pictures it was a mess that was a terrible terrible crash she later died so as this was going on the bad guy on top of the trooper on the ground smashing his head into the ground after he's already shot him Mm -hmm. a man just driving by saw the commotion going on with the trooper on the ground and he pulled over to try to help however he could. I mean, what do you do? You know, what do you yeah. do? The only thing you think you can do is go pull him off. But the man pulled over. He got out of his car. The trooper calls out that he was in big trouble and he needed help. So mm-hmm. the guy at this point goes back. He gets a gun out of his vehicle. Three times he warned the attacker to stand down. Man ignores him. Get off of the trooper ignores bang 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 get off the trooper bang 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 get Mm -hmm. off the trooper and so the man's like i have to do this yeah i gave you a chance he gave him three chances and he continued with his assault so the passerby shot him now yet another person stopped he got into the patrol car and he used the radio to call for assistance because dispatch at this point has no idea that any of this is even going on well yeah he's had no time between the crash and then this attack just randomly yeah so he had no one knows that he's in trouble except for these two men They've called for assistance. They let dispatch know. They said he's really, really injured. They said, you need to send air support. We got to get him out of here quickly. So again, one person took the initiative to assist and another joined in to help however he could. This time, the man shooting the attacker didn't physically knock the guy off the trooper, but he did run the risk of also being shot. By even standing there and yelling at him, he ran the risk of being shot. Even acknowledging that you see what's going down, you run the risk of getting shot in this situation. He also ran the risk of possible criminal consequences if anything had gone wrong Mm -hmm. in shooting that man. But he did it because he had to try to save that trooper's life. And he did save Mm -hmm. the trooper's life. So, yay. Last example of bystanders who did intervene. In London in 2019, and you may have heard about this one on the news, A man named Usman Khan was attending an event for the education of prisoners and ex-prisoners as he was on parole for offenses for which he had been convicted in 2012. So he had gone to prison in 2012. By 2019, he's out on parole and he goes to this event. Okay. On the London Bridge, 
which the event was held just off of the bridge. Mm -hmm. He approached some people, opened his overcoat to expose what appeared to be a bomb vest, and then pulled out a handful of kitchen knives and started attacking people. Five people sustained serious injury, two of whom actually died. The bomb vest he was wearing to prevent people from tackling him. You know, he wanted to do the greatest amount of damage possible. Dozens of people saw the violence, but they feared an explosion, so they flocked away from the area. But not all. John Crilly, a reformed ex-prisoner himself, who was at the same event and knew the people who had been injured, grabbed a fire extinguisher and ran towards the attacker, brandishing it as a weapon to subdue Khan. Other individuals also assisted in wrestling him to the ground, including one man who used a narwhal tusk that he had grabbed <laughs> off of a display. So, so here's a guy with a fire extinguisher. Here's a guy with a narwhal <laughs> tusk. All of these people were physically attacking a man they believed to be wearing a suicide vest. Think about that. Afterwards, John Crilly said that it was clear this attacker was intent on hurting as many people as possible. He had already badly hurt people that John knew, and he just needed to be stopped one way or another. Mm -hmm. He said he didn't know of a way to stop him without interacting with him, but he just needed to take action because someone needed to do it. And once he started, other people joined in. The police arrive while they have him on the ground, mm -hmm. and the attacker ended up being shot, and he did die. And it turned out that the suicide vest was fake, although none of the brave people who intervened had any way of knowing Of course that. they didn't. Yeah. But those people certainly saved lives, as this attacker would have just kept stabbing as many people as he could reach as long as he possibly could have. Yeah, he's just using that as a safety shield at this point, just yeah. hoping that other people would buy it. Yeah, he's hoping that they will just... And why wouldn't they? Crazy shit happens every day in this world. Why do you want to grab a guy who's wearing a bomb? Right. All those folks who raced into danger to try to help could have just as easily run the other way. They chose not to. Bystander effect? Is it real? Yes, sometimes it is real. But I found dozens of stories like these. These examples show that there are plenty of good-hearted, brave, civic-minded people who will try to help even at the risk of their own injury. But you do have to wonder about people in groups where intervention should be most likely to happen, but it often doesn't. Mm -hmm. So how do we start to change that? We have to be aware of it. We have to be cognizant of it, first of all. There are five ways that a bystander can help. Obviously, it's important to assess whether intervention is going to cause you or the other party that's already involved even more harm. Right. Some of the methods I'm going to mention happen after the fact, so that kind of takes that into account. Okay. The first method is direct intervention, and that's where you're stepping in to disrupt what has happened to give the person of concern a chance to get out of the situation, run away, or to immobilize or whatever if somebody is doing something bad to them. Right. Okay. You do have to use judgment, obviously, about whether it seems as if the person you're trying to help actually wants or needs help. Mm -hmm. Just because someone falls down doesn't mean that they want 52 people to come over and bother them. Right. You know, maybe they just want to sit there for a minute and collect their thoughts and then go on their way. Mm -hmm. But it never hurts to ask, is there something I can do to help you? This direct intervention is like the man who tackled the knife-wielding subway st stabber, mm -hmm. allowing yeah. the woman to escape the assailant. Also, the people who found makeshift weapons to knock down and detain the man they thought was wearing a bomb vest, even though they could have been hurt, to give dozens of other people time to get off the bridge and get to safety. It could also be a direct verbal intervention. This is not okay. Leave this person alone. Stop touching him or her. Let them go. And reminding others around to be cognizant of what's yeah, going on. Yeah, bring attention to the situation if yeah. you have to. Make people aware that something could be happening that you should be helping with. And 
Sometimes people just need to be told. Called out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the second method is delegation, and that's where this comes in, this, mm-hmm. this calling out. Remember, in a group, people tend to not act because they feel like their responsibility is no greater to help than anybody else's responsibility. And so people tend to wait for someone in authority to come and take charge. Mm-hmm. You can become that person who takes charge. Look directly at someone and tell them, call 911. Look directly at someone and tell them to find something to put under the head of the person who fell on the ground. Look directly at someone and tell them to put pressure on a bleeding wound. You have to give directions to specific people because, again, just saying, someone call 911 just lets everyone else assume that somebody else will do it. Yeah. And they probably won't. Another form of delegation would be if you were in a situation where, say, you and your girlfriends are out. And a guy from a group of guys is hassling one of your girlfriends and he will not leave her alone. Mm -hmm. And he's getting really creepy. Going up to the guy and saying, bug off, may not do anything. But it may help if you go over to his group and say, hey, your friend is really being creepy with my friend. Can Mm -hmm. you help get him off her case? Sometimes you just need the assistance of someone who's an ally with that person. I've never once thought about doing that. That's a really good point, though. Well... Because my first thought is always either tell him to scram myself, and if that doesn't work, get the bodyguard or whatever at the door to those, kick him out. Those but are like, not bad <laughs> options, but sometimes it. But sometimes that's an you need an ally. Where he's not going to come back and hurt you, probably because his friends are even like. Yeah, they're like you're dude, being weird. Dude. Knock it off. Just get away from them. Huh. So if direct intervention or delegation seems likely to exacerbate things, or if you think it could get you or others in an even more dangerous situation, the next method is to distract. Question, have you seen the Snack Man video? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. This is about. awesome. If you have not seen the Snack Man video, just Google on YouTube or wherever, Snack Man, and you will see exactly who I'm talking about. There's a couple on a train. It's a very crowded train. Again, a lot of shit happens on trains, apparently. This couple on the train is literally kicking one another. Very crowded. Everyone's standing around. They have no idea what to do about yeah. this. This guy calmly walks down the train aisle acting as if he doesn't even know anything is happening just looks completely oblivious although he knows everything that's going on he just walking down the aisle and he just stops in between them and he's just standing there eating chips (laughs) he's literally just eating doritos or something and it totally took the the heat out of the situation it Mm de-escalated so quickly and it just gave them a breather So he literally just stood there, gave both parties a chance to just kind of collect their thoughts, get their shit together, and they stopped fighting. But if there was a weapon, if one of them was stabbing the other, this would obviously not have been a safe scenario for him to just stand in the middle. I hate to minimize the situation, but it's almost like they just needed a comic relief to come into the moment. Yeah, I think that... Like you said, breath of fresh air. It gave them an excuse to stop fighting and stop hitting each other without either of them backing down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He just took the wind out of the wildfire, yeah. I guess you could say. I also heard anecdotes of people who were using this method of distraction who just suddenly started singing loudly. Mm-hmm. Because if you're screaming or if you're punching somebody and someone starts singing, yes, sir, that's my baby. <laughs> you know? 
you're gonna turn and go, what the hell? Yeah, I've seen that actually at bars outside mm-hmm. when they the boys get in their fist fight and girls just walk up and go, why are you doing that? Come on, let's be happy. <laughs> you can also go up and and make a comment about an unrelated subject. You know, hey man, nice shoes. Where'd you get your shoes? Or you know, whose dog is that? Or, just make up something stupid. Did you hear Tom Cruise just got arrested for selling geese on the internet? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that actually happened. Let's, it's too soon for me, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, there might also be times when there's just no way to safely intervene. You know, and it's not like you just want to say every man for himself, but there's nothing you're going to be able to do in some situations that's going to cause the situation to stop. Yeah. So the fourth method of intervention is delay. And that's where you see a pickpocket come up and grab a lady's purse it knocks her down and she hits her head on the pavement Mm -hmm. you can't stop this from happening because it just happened but you can go over and morally support this lady you could say we're calling the police we're calling the ambulance yeah i witnessed do you have family that you want me to call to have them come down here and help you Mm -hmm. you know just be there for that person because that's a terrible thing Or if someone has had a stroke or a heart attack and they're terrified, you don't just leave them laying on the sidewalk being terrified. Even if you call 911, go over and hold their hand. Go over and say, I'm here with you. I won't leave you until there's help here for you. Mm -hmm. You know, you just have to put yourself in people's shoes and show compassion for the fear that you experience when you have something unexpected like that happen to you. Stay with them until help arrives or until their family can get there, etc. And then finally, there's documentation. That doesn't mean if somebody has a stroke on the sidewalk that you go up and start videotaping them. Oh, God, I hate that so much. That means if there's violence happening to someone or if they're being harassed by someone and the person will not leave them alone, just say, hey, I'm catching this on video. I'm recording Mm -hmm. this situation. And you're not saying that to be a you know, I'm the big guy here. Yeah. You're saying that because you're trying to tell this perpetrator, and you are being caught, this is going to be evidence against you. Yes. So mentioning that you're catching the situation on video might cause the instigator to walk away. Mm -hmm. Record it, including landmarks. Make sure you're doing that so that later on the person who needs this video can identify where this happened. Yeah, like street signs. Get a street sign in there. That's right. Exactly. Afterwards... Ask the target of the violence or the person who was being harassed, what do you want me to do with this video? Mm-hmm. You know, Do you want me to email this to you? Do you want me to give it to the police? Don't post it online. Never, yes. ever live stream a thing like this because that's just violence porn and nobody that is into violence porn deserves to see the vulnerable position that these victims are in. Yeah, it's... And a lot of things have been live-streamed lately that are just... Disgusting. Disgusting, and then the family has to watch somebody get shot or something like that, and it's... That doesn't need to be out there forever. It's just such an invasion of a person's privacy, and I don't mean the bad person's privacy, I mean the good person's privacy. Would you want that of you on the internet? Yeah, if you are being victimized, it should be your choice who gets to see what happened to you. But having the video for the victim to give to the police or other purposes might be helpful. Yeah. So taking the video is a good thing, but you don't get to decide what happens to it just because you took that video. And, and I don't care. Day, I'm not talking about copyright laws. I'm talking about morally. Yeah. That's not your decision. That's the decision of the person who's being attacked in that video. And honestly, they might end up telling you, I'd rather you just delete that. And yes. if they do, that's their prerogative. 
but just know you tried and you did something to help. That's it. It's (laughs) their choice. So in summary, the five D's of avoiding bystander effect, Mm -hmm. in other words, creating bystander intervention methods, there's direct, there's delegation, there's distraction, there's delay, and then there's documentation. And that's all I have. I just wanted to talk about some cases where people did intervene because there are a lot more of those, but we just don't hear them because they aren't as good in the news. It's not as good journalism or whatever. You know what I I mean? mean, Some of them are really interesting stories, but you know, when you've got a woman raped on a train, that's Mm -hmm. gonna sell a lot more. And it's just, it's nice though. It's nice and refreshing because it's so easy in today's world to just forget that people are good, but. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. We added France and Scotland Ooh, yeah, to our map. Was, we was... added several more states, but I can't remember which ones we had before and which ones we had oh, gosh. after. We have a few more pins in Canada now. A few more Florida. Thank you for stopping your thrumping of Canada. They seem to not hate us anymore. You guys are slowly turning me to the good side. <laughs> Come to the good side. I don't know. If that <laughs> Thank you for joining us this week on True Crime B&B. Yes, we welcome you back every week, crime family, and we will hopefully see you next week. And once again, you Ooh. can always reach out to us on Instagram at True Crime B&B. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. See ya. Bye. <coughs> Three, two, one, hit. Did you hit it? Yes. Okay. <laughs>